You can take a seat. It's so good to, to gather together here for our Sunday morning service. Thanks so much, John. And can we give a round of applause for our praise team this morning? They do such a great job, and what a wonderful thing it is to come together and praise our great God together. So this morning, we're going to spend some time in God's Word. Did anyone believe this morning that God's Word has power contained within it? Come on. That God's Word actually always contains truth for us as believers in Jesus to engage with, draw from, and be encouraged in. And this morning, I want to take you to a passage of Scripture that is just one of my favorites in the New Testaments and in the Gospels. Really quick before we do that, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name's Phil. I'm one of the pastors here at True North. It's so good to be here together this morning. Also, a special shout out to the chapel service meeting upstairs. We love you guys. Can we, can we say hi to the chapel service? Everyone say hi. They, they hang out upstairs, so great to have you guys here this morning as well. But we're going we're gonna to begin by reading one of my favorite stories. Are you ready to read together? Anyone doing a Bible reading plan at the moment? Anyone? A few hands around the Okay, you have my permission. This can be your reading plan for the day. We're going to read together. Let's, uh, let's go, to the, go to the verse. And we're going to Luke chapter 5, verse 17 to 19, and it's the story of Jesus healing a paralyzed man. And here's what it says. One day, Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Now, this is an interesting statement, because when I think of Jesus, I kind of imagine that the power of God is almost always with him to do miraculously awesome things. So for Luke, our author, to say, in particular, on this particular day, the power of God was with Jesus to do incredible things. Now, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. Now, when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up onto the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Anyone heard this story before? It's a fun story, right? In Mark's account, he says that they dig through the roof. Uh, and we don't know exactly what that is, if it is tiles that they're moving nicely aside or if it is a bit more violent as they're ripping through. But no matter how your imagination plays out this scene, they're making a scene, right? They're making a scene in their effort to get to Jesus. Let's continue in the story. In verse 20, Now when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, now at his feet, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're quite right in their observation that only God can forgive the sins between us and God. What they didn't realize is that God's son was standing right in front of them. Now, Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? And we'll continue on. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now, when I first started reading this passage of Scripture, when Jesus gave this question, what's easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk to a paralyzed person? Now, at first, my mind was like, it is way easier to say that your sins are forgiven, it's way easier to say that your sins are forgiven than to see someone miraculously healed. But as I dwell on this scripture, I think Jesus was actually saying the opposite. 
He's saying, you know, there's been, there's been people in our history, prophets, that the power of God was with in mighty ways that saw miraculous healings, that saw things like this happen. Even the physicians of the day in their own way could, could heal to some extent. But Jesus is saying there is only one who has the authority to forgive sins. I am he. To forgive the sin and the enmity between man and God is the harder thing by far. I think this is what Jesus is saying. But then he continues, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up. Someone say, get up. up. Come on, get up. Take your mat and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been laying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. And wouldn't you agree that if you were present in that crowd, you would go home saying, gee whiz, we saw something remarkable today. We saw God do something remarkable. We saw Jesus do something remarkable. You know, as we dwell on this story, and as I read it, I kind of see two plot lines. Two plot lines, both converging on Jesus at the center. The first plot line is those in need seeking provision. I think we've got this up on the screen. Those in need seeking provision through an encounter with Jesus. The four friends carrying their paralyzed friend. They're in a position of need, and they have the belief that if they can just encounter Jesus, they would find their provision. But then there's a second plot line running through this story. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they were the religious authority of the day. They'd heard about Jesus. They'd heard about this teaching that he was bringing. They'd heard about the authority that he spoke with. They'd heard stories about these amazing healings. And they gathered from all over, basically to come and keep tabs on Jesus, to exert their religious authority over Jesus and this new kingdom teaching that he was bringing. So they came with religious authority and power, seeking to control the message of Jesus. And we're going to see how both of these plot lines converge on Jesus in the moment that he declares to the paralyzed man, not get up and walk, but rather you are forgiven. So let's follow the first thread. Those in need, seeking the provision of Jesus. Now, for us, when we seek to encounter God, and likewise for these guys, it always begins with intention, right? Intention is the first step, that if I want to know and encounter Jesus in my life, it has to first be my intent to know and encounter Jesus. And this is how the story begins with, uh, with our four friends and their paralyzed friends. Some men came carrying a, mat, a paralyzed man on a mat. They came to where Jesus was with the intention of encountering Jesus. What I love as I read this story is that these guys had the absolute faith, the absolute certainty that if they they could just get to Jesus, their friend would be completely renewed and restored. Absolute faith, no shadow of doubt in their mind at all. If we get to Jesus, our friend will be healed. Now, that was the intention. Now, most of us at this point in our lives, uh, we realize that, that intentions are a funny thing. 
You know, when I first moved into my house, I noticed that in the bathroom there was some water damage around the window. Like, I don't think it had been sealed properly. The weather had come through. And, uh, you know, just some of the gyp rock, there was a bit of damage there. And as we were doing that kind of final inspection through the house, has anyone done that? You, you bought a house and you're inspecting things. You're like, oh, geez, that's not great, but we can sort that out later. And, and I saw this bathroom and I saw this bit of damage and water damage in the wall. And I thought to myself, once we move in, I'm going to fix that. That was my intention. I hear some honest laughter around the place. Can I, can I confess that it is still my intention to fix that wall around the window in my bathroom? I won't tell you how many years I've been living in that house. It's eight. <laughs> it's still my intention. The intention hasn't changed. The wall, too, hasn't changed. Actually, that's not true. It's gotten a little bit worse. The moisture damage has kind of worsened over those eight years. But the intention in my mind, literally still to this day, is I'm going to fix that. I'm going to fix that. Now, we all have 100 stories in our own lives of intentions, good intentions, that never translate into action. And the reason that sometimes our intentions don't translate into action is because our intentions will always face opposition. Right? That when we have an intention, they will always face some kind of opposition. And so too do our friends in this story. They tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus, but what do they encounter? A crowd. They couldn't find a way to get to Jesus. There was a physical barrier of people. They arrived at the scene and they're like, if we, remembering, they've got this absolute belief if they get to Jesus, their friend will be healed. Operating with that certainty, they now have a crowd of people in front of them, preventing them from getting to Jesus. They have some opposition to overcome. And the reason we love this story is because they do so in dramatic fashion, right? They climb up on the roof, they dig through it. They make a giant scene, make a giant mess, cause all kinds of property damage. Lower this guy through the roof. Everyone's looking at them. Jesus is in the middle of talking about the kingdom of God, and all of a sudden, a mat comes down. Everyone's horrified. Who the heck are these guys? What are they doing? Everyone's looking at them, pointing, staring. But they don't care about the opposition, because their intention to encounter Jesus is set. So here's where we can read ourselves into this story. If we operate with the same starting point as a follower of Jesus, or maybe if you're new to faith, my intention is to know more of who God is. My intention is to have an encounter with who Jesus is. And for a lot of us sitting here today, that is our intention, to know more of God, to come to understand more of His grace and leading in our lives. So that's our intention. Now, what is the opposition that we have to overcome to make that a reality. You know, there's going to be lots of different ones for each of us, a few common ones as well. You know, in the world that we live in, the culture that we find ourselves within, we're, we're faced with the reality that so many things decide for us that they are really urgent. Have you noticed that? That in our working lives, as parents, in a number of different contexts, there's things that says, I'm so urgent, give me your attention. Now, I think a problem that a lot of us face is that encountering Jesus rarely becomes something that's urgent in my life. That should probably sting a little bit. It does for me when I reflect on that. Is an encounter with Jesus urgent in my life? The guys in this story, it was urgent. They came in need seeking provision. The need was urgent. 
So they overcame the opposition, intention became action, and they encountered Jesus. What are the things that oppose us knowing more of Christ in our life? You know, I believe we, we see something else in this passage that, that, that just points us to, and it's sin. One of the things that opposes me encountering Christ in my life is sin and shame. And we're going to have a conversation about sin and shame this morning. That sounds fun, right? That sounds really fun. But as much as we can, I want to keep this light because the reality is each and every one of us in this room is impacted by it. So it's not like this weird abstract thing that only I know and experience. It's something that's common to all of us. And so as we have this conversation, I want to keep a particular image on the screens just to lighten things up as we think about shame and its impact on our life. Right? Now, one of the things that I love about dogs is that they have the capacity to feel shame. Anyone have a dog at home? And it does something naughty, it like eats your shoes or like throws up in your bed or any of the gross things that pets do. Sorry if that was too graphic. And, and then they give you this look. They know that they've made a mistake. And it's like, oh my goodness, how can I stay mad at you? <laughs> they've got this capacity to feel shame when they make a mistake. It's amazing. I have a cat. Cats don't have this same emotional capacity. They're kind of big shots. They do exactly what they mean to do, and they do not care what you think about it. And, however, I still love my cat, but he doesn't make that face ever. But let's talk about how shame shows up in our life. You know, earlier this week, I, uh, I took one of my sons to, to kindy. He goes to kindy now, which is fun. And, uh, and we were, you know, picking out his clothes. He's got a school uniform. But there are a few options within that uniform. And, uh, and we were deciding what we are going to wear. I was like, what, should we, what do you want to wear today? And he's like, let's go shorts and a shirt. I was like, awesome. And he put on his, put on his kindy shorts, put on his, his kindy shirt. And, and we were ready to go. And we, we got, got his bag, got his lunch, all that kind of stuff. And we, we headed off to school. And then on the way to school, it started lightly raining slightly, just like a light shower, not even a shower, more of a sprinkle, really more of a sprinkle. And we got out of the car, and then I, for the first time that day, realized it's kind of freezing today. <laughs> it's, it's kind of cold, it's windy, it's drizzling, it's raining. And, uh, and, uh, and my son was like, Dad, it's raining. I was like, that's okay, we'll just bolt to, bolt to your classroom, it'll be nice when we get there. And sure enough, that's exactly what we did, that was kind of fun. Got to the classroom, did all the fun things that you sign in, you kind of get to write your name as you go in. I don't get to do that, but he does, it must be nice. And, and you go in and you, re you get to, to read with your kids for a little while until the bell, bell goes. And then when the bell goes, what happens, all the kids sit in a little circle and they're ready to start their school day. Now, it was at this point that I realized as they're all sitting in that circle, every other kid is wearing track pants and their school jacket. And it's like this really striking dark blue. And then there's my son wearing like this bright blue kindy t-shirt. And I look at it, I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I've made an error here. And literally for the first time in my life, I felt, I felt public parental shame. <laughs> I was like, what have I done? <laughs> And he's kind of like saying goodbye, and he was kind of like a little bit like this, but he had this big smile on his face. And I was just like, oh, shivers. I, I've just got to get out of here. Some overly confident mum's going to give me some passive-aggressive comment like, oh, is, is, is the jacket in the wash? I'm like, honey, I don't even know where his jacket is. I just got to get out of here. 
And I, I fled the scene, and of course, he was fine at the end of the day. I think I, I actually think he was loaned a rain jacket at some point within the day. He's got a great teacher. Uh, anyway, we know the touch of shame in our life. In small ways, when we make a bad decision, and we have that sense of regret, and we're like, oh, that wasn't the best move. Jeez, I wish I did that differently. Shame shows up in other places as well, completely outside of our control sometimes, where people in our world, friendships, relationships, whatever it might be, simply for, for who we are, what we're like, will prescribe shame for our life. Horrible, terrible. There's also a shame that exists between us and God in a journey of faith. And it begins with sin. And shame's almost like the, the, the ugly ripple effect of, uh, of sin in our life. But one of the great truths of faith in God is that that kind of shame doesn't actually have to be present in our life. Now, when we begin this conversation around sin and shame, it's time to pick up our second thread in this story. So remember the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they've arrived here as well to hear the teachings of Jesus and to judge. And to judge. They've shown up and they're sitting there thinking, is what this guy has to say, is it really accurate? Now here's something you've got to understand about the Pharisees. They really disliked sin. They, they hated sin. They didn't like it at all. And that wasn't a bad starting point. They wanted to make sure that they avoided sin no matter what. And as a religious authority of the day, they tried to, to do that on behalf of people as well. Now, here was their approach to it. Say you had a command like, do not use the, the Lord's name in vain. They would take that command and then they would put a hedge around it, a behavioral hedge around the command. So they would say, okay, we know that it's breaking the law, it's sin, if we use God's name in vain. So here's what we're going to prescribe. We're going to say, do not use the Lord's name at all, because that means you're completely protected from breaking the law. So what they do, they take the law and they increase the requirements of the law. And it starts with this intention to protect them against sin. But what it led to was that all of Israel began focusing on the letter of the law rather than the heart of the law. Now the currency of the Pharisees' authority of the day, it was shame. It was shame. So that when one broke the law you'd feel this intense sense of falling short of the mark. And then so you would need the Pharisees to prescribe what X, Y, and Z needs to be done so that I can be restored in the eyes of God. Shame was the currency of the Pharisees' authority. Now, Jesus, in this moment, does something really profound. And there's something else that we've got to understand about this man in his paralysis. So Jesus is dealing with a culture that has become terrified of sin, has become terrified of the impact of sin, the effects of sin. And so much so that they, they started to believe, and it had become widespread, a belief that if you were suffering from some kind of an illness, if you had a flu, that it was the result of sin in your life. Terrible, broken theology. But this was the belief that they started to have, that if there was some kind of physical problem that I had, that it could be explained by God punishing me because of my sin. That's terrible, right? Awful. You can say yes to that. That's like, that's real bad news. This is the culture that Jesus steps into in his public ministry. So if you've got a flu, someone might think, oh, geez, 
Phil's got a cold again. What's he been doing? He's been telling lies again, I bet. Lies and flu, that seems like that matches up. And then imagine you're suffering a condition that completely paralyzes you. What would people be saying? My goodness, what must he have done to deserve that? What must his family have done? Jeez, I don't even want to know. What must he have done that God would punish him so severely? So this paralyzed man comes with a really horrible physical challenge. But then he also comes with a really horrible sense of shame placed on him by the culture that he finds himself in. Now, this really informs the first words that Jesus chooses to say to him. Remember, he came with the intention, I, I want to walk, I want to be healed, I want to run around. Jesus ignores that for a moment. He says, friend, a term of acceptance, endearment, love even, your sins are forgiven. And what Jesus does in this exact moment, in full view of the Pharisees, is he breaks the currency of shame on that man's life. But he does more than that. He breaks the currency of shame that had become just so rampant within their approach to God and faith. Now, the Pharisees who are seeking control, they realize that Jesus is taking their authority away. And this is why they react like this. They say, only God can forgive sins, and we're the custodians of God's forgiveness. They know their authority has been taken away by this new teaching of Jesus. But this passage is given to us as the church today so that we would know that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, that Jesus has the absolute authority to forgive sins, that sin and shame has no hold on my life when I know the grace and provision of Jesus in me. Now, I want to invite the team to come up and join me. And we're going to do a couple of things here this morning. But I believe that the message of this scripture is to know, firstly, the authority of Jesus to redeem and renew your life. That no matter what your life looks like, the authority of Jesus is here to renew and restore. Make you as new. But Jesus does something else in this story. He doesn't just break the power of shame. In his authority, he then gives a new command. And that command is to get up. It says, your sins are forgiven. I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. I love this picture that Jesus commands him, take hold of the thing which once held you. Do you see that in the Scripture? Take hold of the thing that once held you. You're forgiven, you're renewed, you're restored. Now get up. Can someone say get up? That the voice of God this morning is to simply say get up. Many years ago, I became a fan of the Rocky movies. I try not to talk about this too much, but it just always comes out. Rocky Three. 
He faces Mr. T, called Clubber Lang in that particular movie. And in that movie, I learned for the first time about some of the rules of boxing. Now, in boxing, if you take a shot and you get knocked down to the floor, to the mat, what happens? Anyone know? Any fans of boxing? There's a count. There's a count. The referee starts counting, and he counts up to 10. And if you're still on the mat, when it gets to 10, what happens? Knockout. You're done. That's it. You're over. No chance of victory. You stay on the mat. You're not getting up. You've lost the match. So there's this 10 count when you get knocked down. Now, I want to try to describe something about how I see sin and shame in the life of believer. That sometimes, each one of us, we, we do, we get knocked down. There's sin in my life that knocks me down on my back on the mat. Sometimes there's situations that I face, frustrations that I have, pain, loss, grief, whatever it might be, that knock me down onto the mat. And then in that place of brokenness, there's this count that starts. One, two, and then there's this voice that starts chirping up. Phil, this is where you should be. This is where you should be. You're defeated. Three, four. Imagine if everyone else in your world knew what you were really like, the mistakes that you've made. Five, six. Are you sure God could really love you, really forgive you? Seven, eight. How can God use you, Phil? You're so broken. Nine, ten. Just stay down. Stay down. And that's the voice of shame. The voice of the one that would oppose my soul to say, stay on the mat. Don't worry about encountering Jesus anymore. Don't worry about the plans or purposes that Christ might have for you. Just stay on the mat. Now, if that picture resonates with you this morning, can I remind you the command that's at the center of this passage of Scripture? Anyone remember what it is? Get up. The voice of Jesus speaking into your soul this morning is simply these two words. Get up. I've got the authority. You're redeemed. You're restored. You're forgiven. Now get up and walk. So no longer is there a referee counting up to 10 until I eventually give up. Now there's a referee counting down from 10 to the eventual moment when I remember that I am set free in the name of Jesus Christ. That it doesn't start with a one count anymore. It starts with a 10. Nine. Remember, Phil, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Get up. Eight. Seven. Remember, I know the plans I have for you, plans to, to give you a future, to prosper you. Six, five, he who the sun sets free is free indeed. Phil, get up. Four, three, remember he saw you on the other side of the cross. He chose the cross, chose to scorn at shame. Sit down at the right hand of God. Two, Phil, he loves you. He's never leaving you. And one, we finally remember 
that sin and shame has no hold on our life and we bounce up in the provision of Jesus. That even when we're on our backs on the mat, sucking in oxygen, we suddenly remember it's His breath in our lungs. It's His breath in our lungs. And the currency of shame is broken over your life. You need to hear that this morning. The currency of shame is broken over your life. And there's only grace, only forgiveness. The authority of Jesus made clear that he has restored and renewed your soul. But now it's time to get up. Now it's time to get up.